You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 29. Altitude. Altitude. Tower 26 is released to you, runway 411405. Clear for takeoff. Sea tide. Altura Zero Eyes, we're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Viper check 2. Viper check 2. Viper check 2. And here's what haunts me, Rain. It haunts me to this day because nobody knew what the hell was going on. A, B, triple C, everybody's quiet. And I remember looking over the canopy rail and seeing kaboom. And then the shortly thereafter another explosion i'm saying man the navy's hammering the beach down there well it wasn't the navy it was i saw three helicopters get shot down in about uh, five minutes killed a bunch of marines so now all hell's breaking loose are the survivors of the my guess are the crew members on that island now we worked with some of the uh pjs and there were some jolly greens involved in this thing. And, you know, they'd be keying their mic. They're running for their lives and saying, Sandy, Sandy, we're taking fire. We're taking fire. You could hear the bullets or the guns and everything else. And I mean, what the hell do you do? Hey, thanks for listening. That's the voice of my guest today, Slough. And he's talking about the Maigas incident, which is dating back to the Vietnam days. We're going to discuss that as well as many other things. He's flown quite a few planes and seen a few things. But before we get into the episode with Slough, if you're enjoying the podcast, again, swing it over to iTunes, taking the five seconds to hit the five-star review button and leave a review. It can be just a couple words. That helps the podcast out. And for all those who have done it, thank you. And if you're just bored and haven't done it, swing over to iTunes. Hit that make it happen. I took the week off last week. I was down at Sun and Fun, quite a good time, and uh, we're getting back into it. So I owe you guys a Q&A session, but if you're looking for more content, you can swing over to patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast. Each tier has an associated merchandise level. All that stuff is going out here in the next week for all those who have signed up. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Thank you for helping it grow. I appreciate that. And again, Stories like There I Was, just some bonus content lives up there as well as some behind the scenes, ad-free episodes, and a few other things. Again, you can find that at patreon.com backslash the Afterburn Podcast. As I always say, for me, it's challenging to spell that, but something really simple is theafterburnpodcast.com, and you can find all this and much more to include videos, more behind-the-scenes content, if you swing over there. So with that being said, let's get into the episode with Slough. Awesome. Slough, thank you for joining me on the podcast. We've jumped a few hurdles to make this happen. People don't see the scheduling that's behind the scenes, but I appreciate you taking the time to be here. Before you're rolling, we give everyone the standard elevator pitch of who you are, where you've been, and what you're doing today. It's going to be tough for you to surmise in 60 seconds as I look at your resume, but... <laughs> Take, the, take as much time as you want. Well, Rain, I tell you, I really appreciate it. Everybody likes to talk about themselves, you know, especially <laughs> fighter pilots. <laughs> no joke. I, will, I will try to hit the highlights. You know, looking back on my career, I'm 73 years old. And 
you know, sometimes I amaze myself. First of all, <laughs> shocked to be a lit alive this long, but yeah. okay. I grew up in Kansas. My dad was a cowboy. He was a tough as nails guy, but a very soft heart. And I graduated from a very small uh, graduating class of 19 in Southeast Kansas. I went to Wichita state. My uncle worked at Boeing and he kind of headed me in the Air Force ROTC because at that time they had draft numbers and uh, I had a pretty high one or low one, however way you look at it. Yeah. So I got into Air Force ROTC and uh, barely graduate, well, barely made it to the first two years because of my uh, set my hair on fire and raising hell and uh, drinking and everything else. <laughs> but I got serious about uh, ROTC. Thanks a lot for my buddy Lou for getting me through there. And uh, from Wichita State, I went to Shepherd Air Force Base and I uh, trained with the uh, Germans. Okay. Now, later on, they had the Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training. I don't even know whether they still have that or not, but yep. we so, probably had 75% German IPs and... Uh, about half the class, maybe a few more Americans, and all the Germans were going to F-104s. So from there, I was lucky enough to get the A-7D, which was a relatively new airplane for the Air Force. The Navy had it uh, A-7E, so I got the A-7D to Myrtle Beach, and it was grounded for a while with engine problems, so I flew the T-33, which your older viewers are going to It was a great airplane. I loved it. I got about 100 hours in it. Easy to fly, hard to taxi. <laughs> and from there, I came back to, went to davis Monthan and uh, for six months, got checked out in the A-7, and we talked a little bit about that, and then went back to Myrtle Beach, was there only a few months, and we got deployed to Southeast Asia at Karat Air Force Base in Thailand, which had a tremendous amount of history with uh, F-105s. And I was over there, let's see, seven months, came back to Myrtle Beach for a year, and then went back to Karat in a different squadron. We took over the search and rescue role from the A1E. So I flew the A7D for uh, search and rescue, which we talk about that because it's quite interesting. Yeah, I'd love to. And was involved in the MyGas incident over there and we stayed for a year. And then I came back to Holloman and flew the T38B, we called it then. And we talk about that because, you know, I was bummed out. I said, holy moly, I got this combat time. I'm going back to flight T38s. You know what, Rain? It turned out to be probably the highlight of my career. I've got such good memories. And from there, I was lucky enough to go to uh, F-5 weapons school at Willie for about six months. And I flew the F-5 up there with the Allies. We had Iranians in there and yeah, yeah. Kuwaitis and South <laughs> Koreans. And it was thoroughly enjoyable, even though it was a lot of hard work. So then I come back to Holloman because I picked up a training commitment and lo and behold, I, I didn't even remember I'd put in for an Astra tour. Now you guys, you young guys probably don't even know what the hell an Astra tour is, yeah, you, but it you got to tell me. It stands for air staff training. Now you have to understand I was a much motivated career officer. So I was kind of punching the right tickets and all this other stuff. But uh, I got an Astro tour and I went to the Pentagon for a little over a year, maybe between a year, year and a half. 
which was a great experience. Now, guys would say, I met the mythical, the great mythical bird called the real Air Force. I said, oh, boy, oh boy. <laughs> you know, always in the back of my mind, I wanted to be an airline pilot. God knows I didn't tell any of my fighter pilots. They'd <laughs> throw you out of the unit, you know. Yeah. But uh, so I was up there about a year and a half. We'll talk about that. I've run into some great patriots, learned a hell of a lot and everything else. Now, that would have been about 79, 80. So then I lucked out and got back to go back to Holland to fly T-38s because I had a year left on my commitment. I couldn't get out of it. And so then I did that and I got an airline job with a startup airline out of Newark, New Jersey, of all places. I was a first officer for three weeks. What luck, blind ass luck, 32 years as a captain. (laughs) And now I had a year off, (laughs) I took a year off but, you know, I wanted for selfish reasons to get my uh, retirement in. So I got a job at the Boys from Syracuse, we called it, was the nickname of the squadron. And they were flying A-10s, a relatively new airplane at the time. So I joined those guys in 82. And I flew the A-10 for about seven and a half years and finished up with the F-16. And I flew the F-16A model and the F-16C GE engine, which I think you like a little better. There than we go. Frat. Yeah, yeah. That's what you What's a frat? <laughs> I flew the, the big mouth block 30, I think, at the time, which was a rocket. That thing yeah. was a rocket. So I retired in 96. I had 25 years in and then continued with the airlines. And I retired with the airlines in uh, 2013. Quite a career. Uh, you know, I look back on it. There is a hell of a lot of randomness and luck, but you know, as we go along here, maybe I can throw in some pearls of wisdom, but that's not guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you but, know, uh, that, that was my career. I, I was, I was very fortunate. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. Better be lucky than good. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, backing all the way up. So the a seven, is that, the plane you wanted out of pilot training or did you want to go do something else? Absolutely. That was the plane. You know, here's, it was very popular for young guys going in because they hadn't taken any lieutenants in. They hadn't taken anybody out of pilot training. And uh, it was new, virtually brand new. And everybody was fired up about it. Now, in our class, we did pretty good because a lot of uh, academy guys went to, at that time, went to Shepard. And if you wanted to fly a fighter, they seemed to get more fighters down. So we only had American-wise, I'm trying to, I'm just kind of guessing, probably 18 to 20 guys graduate. And there were two F-4s, one RF-4 and uh, an A-7. So I got the A-7. So yeah, that to answer that question, absolutely, I wanted to fly it. And, you know, it, it was such a kind of a hot button item because we had a few fighter pilots as instructors in UPT. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. I wish the hell I could see him now. In one of the parties after graduation, you know, I was going to the A7. He come up. He was, I think, pretty sure he's an old F-100 driver, which kind of surprised me. He said, we should not be putting lieutenants in goddamn single seat fighters. It's dangerous. And he said, you, you'll be dead in six months and walked away. <laughs> and I'm saying, holy moly, baby, he's right. Awesome. Let's go do this. <laughs> you know, and but I, I lived through it. Well, you know, I, that mentality, I, it's, it's changed. 
But I'm sure it has. Somewhat still there. When the Raptor came online, I mean, up until 2013, 2014, I think we were still sending Raptor lieutenants. Those lieutenants going to the Raptor, they had to go out to Luke, and they had to do like three or four rides in the back or in the F-16 with an instructor in the back seat. So they get crash course in the F-16, and I think it was day refueling, night refueling, and they wanted to make sure they could land a plane by themselves. Now that's gone, and it, it'll go away because F-35, there are new two-seat two variants, and there's only so many two-seat variants of the F-16. So interesting. I'm sure that was just, let's go get this uh, once, you, once you got those words. Well, it was great because I, you know, I'm kind of guessing here with uh, shaky memory, but uh, how many did we have? Maybe eight to 10 guys, maybe not, right around 10 guys. Everyone was a lieutenant. And we went to DM in the, I think it was the 333rd Squadron. And we had such great instructors, mostly F-100 guys, a few 105 guys. And it was, it was a, a great experience, I'll tell you. And, you know, that first ride, no two-seaters. I mean, I, I was scared to death, yeah. I'm telling you. And a guy chasing me, hell, he didn't say yeah. anything. Be a champion. So, <laughs> so, but, hey, you talk about your confidence level soaring, you know. I mean, it's always a feather in your cap. It's an ego thing, you know, single seat, single engine. So, yeah. but I hear you. I hear you. It kind of goes away. It's, it's a, kind of the culture that uh, changed a little bit, I'm sure. What, what was his driving factor for saying you'll live six months? Was it purely the fact that, you know, there were not that many single seats or they weren't sending lieutenants to single seats or was it the Vietnam War? What, what drove, you think, his mentality saying you're not going to live past six months? You know, I don't know. I have no idea what the hell he was thinking. Possibly a little envy because, uh, you know, those guys weren't too crazy about being a T-38 instructor. Right. And, you know, the culture there was they put a hell of a lot of guys in the pilots in the backseat of the F-4 as, as uh, young guys, which they hated, and it didn't really serve any purpose. So, boy, I tell you, Rain, I don't know why, because all those guys, all my instructors that I remember at DM were, were top-notch guys. I mean, uh, they, they didn't even think about it. Right. You know, they said, you know, you're going to do this. You're going to get through with it, you know. So, uh, hey, we didn't we didn't hurt anybody like the Germans. I went through. They went to Luke, you know, in the F-104 and uh, m amongst other planes. They called it the Widowmaker. They used to kill one a class out there. Yeah. <laughs> because that's a tough airplane. Yeah. Unforgiving. Yeah. Unforgiving. Very unforgiving. So uh, so that that was the reason, I guess. Uh, but it, it was thoroughly enjoyable. So I go back to Myrtle Beach and uh, there for a short time and and we uh, headed off to Karat. So we can we have, talk about that, whatever you want to do. Yeah, so I would like to talk about Karat. So two tours in Karat. The first, right. so the lead up to going downrange, what was that like? Did you get a lot of training or what was the mission focus? Or was it pretty much show up and ride out the door? Well, if I understand that question correctly, you know, obviously, uh, probably the way it is now, you're not mission ready until you get back to your unit and then you got to take some rides. Yep. And uh, I can't really remember, but, you know, I would think we got back there at the end of the year and we left to go to Thailand, uh, the squadron did in about uh, May, I think, April or May. So we didn't have a lot of time. 
Yeah. So and, yeah, for the listeners, when I, I guess what I was trying to get at to be a fighter sure. pilot, and you know, today's you go through the F-16 training, the F-22 training, the schoolhouse, and you're, you come out qualified to fly the plane. And there are some exceptions, right? And some of the pipelines are different, but for the F-16 pipeline specifically, you're not a combat mission ready wingman until you show up to your squadron. And then you go through about a three to six month spin up focusing on that primary mission set of that unit. Cause they vary. So did you come out of Tucson fully mission ready and qualified and you're basically just getting some reps before you went to Karat or did you have to get mission ready at Myrtle beach? I think I had to get mission ready at Myrtle beach, obviously a wingman. I mean, you're, yep. you're just hanging on as number two to get the experience, but, uh, uh, yeah. And then obviously as mission combat ready when I left there. And one of the things I thought was interesting, you know, we'd have, uh, uh, certain classifications for instruments where the certain weather minimums and everything else we get to corral you didn't have weather minimums out nothing <laughs> I mean, you're going man you're on a combat mission yeah. so uh yeah i the same thing i don't think that's changed very much to tell you the truth you know you you get your mission ready once your mission ready then you know you go up to two ship two ship flight lead and then a four ship flight lead and all that but i was certainly a uh green wingman that first combat mission i flew i'm hanging on the wing what were those missions like they weren't too bad looking back on it you know we didn't have any real big threat there we only flew in cambodia i mean uh, the pow's had been released in 73 and uh, i had 63 missions in cambodia mostly you know to use the vernacular tree busters not too much but some of the later ones were pretty good now we Worked uh, close air support, obviously, and mostly with OV-10s out of NKP. And uh, they, some of them were pretty good. I remember working a few TICs, and for your audience, that's troops in contact, where you're pretty damn close. And now, as uh, a little bit of bias on my part, uh, the facts loved us because the A-7D was one of the first airplanes for computed bombing. And it, it had a super sophisticated system at that time where you could drop dumb bombs. And then, you know, if you had a good system, it would nail it. Nice. So, plus we had a lot of loiter time. So the F4 guys, <laughs> they were too happy with the fact says, oh, we got some A7s in here. Oh boy, okay, F4s, you hold for a while. So because we dropped pinpoint bombs, you know, so that's certainly what they liked. But uh, yeah, they weren't really that uh that exciting you know uh the only story that it's kind of funny you know i was more concerned about engine failures i th there at one time all the a7s were grounded in the states but we were still flying yeah that's because right. you know we're flying combat sorties that yeah. it was an allison engine i said holy moly what the hell so my big plan was I, if you look at a map you can see tonley sap lake it's kind of in the middle south portion of cambodia so i said well Jeez, if I lose an engineer, I'm going to jump out in Tonley Sap Lake and uh, they'll pick me up. Well, we had an intel briefing not too long after that. And they say, stay the hell away from Tonley Sap Lake. It's filled with crocodiles. So <laughs> I'm going, oh, my God. Oh, so, you know, I have I, nightmares about coming down my parachute. Oh, There's a crocodile waiting on me. I always joked about the poopy suit and having yes. to wear that. So, you know, Sumter, South Carolina, not too far away from Myrtle Beach. You know, it can be 80 degrees surface temperature, nice and hot on the flight line. And then the water temperature is below 60 where you're going to go fight. So you'd wear that poopy suit. 
and you're sweating and miserable. And I always joked, like, I'm going to be the guy who, like, doesn't zip his suit up enough. I have to punch out, and I'm going to go in the water, and it's going to fill. So I've been hot and miserable through ground ops, flying. I'm uncomfortable. I punch out, and now my suit fills with cold water, and I die of hypothermia, and I'm just angry at the world. It'd be like punching out in that lake with a bunch of crocodiles. Like, <laughs> survive the ejection and then get eaten by a crocodile. Not where you want to be in life. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I was very lucky mentioned that poopy suit ring. I never had to wear one. Oh, I should have one time, but I cheated and didn't. (laughs) Well, it's funny to see the different units, you know, Shaw being an active duty base and there's unnamed guard base nearby. The guard base would be wearing the poopy suits. We're, we're high-fiving in and out of the airspace and you know, their, their leadership said, Hey, it's up to you. Like it, the onus is on you. If you want to wear it, you should wear it versus active duty. You know, it's everyone's going to wear it. Everyone's going to be miserable. I mean, if you go out, if you go into the water, 60 degrees or colder, that's not going to be a fun time. You just better hope the Coast Guard shows up pretty quick, I think. Oh, no question. Yeah. No question. <laughs> I always joked, I wouldn't survive Arctic. I would fail Arctic survival because I would die. Being a Georgia boy, like I just don't do cold. So I understand. <laughs> I understand. So those missions. So troops in contact that time, it's kind of like winding down. It's got to be kind of a weird environment on the trail end of the Vietnam War, I would imagine. Was it not? It was. It certainly was. You know, and another thing I was uh, not, you know, I didn't think about too much, but all the POWs were at home. They let them go in, uh, I think it was April 73. So, you know, if you got shot down over there, I mean, what the hell is going to happen to you? You know, you're not going to the Hilton. You're not going to the Hilton. So, but it was peculiar, but still, you know, you're getting ground fire, maybe 37 millimeters, the biggest ahead. I'll never forget my first mission over there working with a fact. And I roll in about my second pass. He says, Hey, two, you better start moving that airplane around, buddy. They're shooting at you. <laughs> I said, Oh yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I no big threat. You know, we did, we did some AC-130 escorts too at night. And you've, I'm sure you've heard guys say this before. It's amazing what you can see at night. Yikes, there's a lot of lead coming at you. You don't see during the daytime. Were you guys flying on goggles or all naked eye? No, that was so far ahead of night vision goggles that, uh, in fact, I never had to wear any of those either. <laughs> your <laughs> so eyesight's whatever. good. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're golden. Oh boy, oh boy, very, very lucky. So yeah, that was way before that, but uh, uh, it was uh, it was exciting. I wanted to do it in the worst way to get over there because I thought I was going to entirely miss out on the war, you know. So yeah. uh, it was uh, it was a good time. I mean, one time I remember uh, I got in a little bit of hot water because we're having knit noise. You've ever heard the term knit noise? No. Knit noise in, in Thai is very small. And these little motor scooters over there, like mopeds. Well, a lot of people had mopeds. So we'd be drinking, raising hell at night, and we'd have moped races out in the the place we lived in Camp Friendship, it was called. Well, I wiped out on the moped and scraped my face all up. I couldn't couldn't (laughs) wear my oxygen mask. And our squadron commander said, listen, the next guy that God dang wipes out on and has and can't fly, he's in deep trouble. So I snuck out and went to NKP, the Confinam, to fly with the facts up there. They had kind of an exchange deal we'd go up there. 
and nail facts. Oh, those guys, I'm telling you that I don't know what the hell they call their bar, but to be in, to be uh uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? To be initiated into the bar, <laughs> you had to drink a, a glass of vodka with grenadine in it. You can imagine. It was close to alcohol poisoning, for yeah. God's sake. <laughs> so then I get up the next morning and go with the super guy. Jeez, I, I can't believe I can't think of his name. But anyway, we went on a four-hour mission working uh, fighters. And then we landed at Nam Penh which was very interesting because they're dropping bombs within about three miles of Nam Pen at the time. And we had lunch with the T-28 uh, Cambodian squadron commander and he gave me a nice flag and it was really cool. So then we uh, take off again and fly four more hours. So eight hours in the backseat of an OB-10. I was wiped. Yeah, after uh, a night of <laughs> solid drinking. Yeah. <laughs> What was the, the so you, and you went back to, so that was the first round of Karat. Right. right. You go back. What was the difference between those two deployments? Was it a different environment, different tempo? Very much so. Very much so. Now we were in the training mode when we went back there. Okay. Now, you know, if you can remember the A1E Sky Raiders, they were all the search and rescue guys, call sign of Sandy. And I'm telling you, Rain, they're, they had big gonads. Those guys were tough. They had a lot of, a lot of uh, rescues that they did. Uh, some up in North Vietnam that are unbelievable. So, uh, yeah. So I went back to I went to the third squadron. We had to do a checkout at England Air Force Base, a search and rescue type, uh, sh relatively short course, and uh, then over to Karat, and then we were set an alert. We'd set uh, four to eight ship, I guess maybe it's only usually four airplanes. We set, set alert every morning or every day. And basically, I think, you know, the, the rumor was we were, because uh, there really no flying going around there. The Khmer Rouge had already taken over Cambodia. No, they hadn't quite yet because they haven't, uh, they hadn't evacuated Nam Pen nor Saigon. But uh, supposedly the blackbirds were up there taking pictures. So we would be up and ready to go from then. But the mission was completely different. That search and rescue checkout, uh, you know, I won't go into the gory details, but usually you run six airplanes. Uh, you had a Sandy High, a Sandy Low. You're working with Jolly Green Giants, uh, the Jolly Green helicopters. You'd have OB-10s and you're kind of the orchestrator of this whole thing. That's one of the toughest checkouts I've ever been through but it was very gratifying. Unfortunately, I never got to pick anybody up, but uh, that kind of leads into the, the my guess thing, which most young guys, and I certainly understand why most people, as far as that goes, that was in 1975. And uh, if you want to hear about that, I'll kind of give you the high points there because there's some certainly some lessons learned on that. Well, it's one of those things that until you mentioned it beforehand, I hadn't I hadn't heard about it. So I went and read. I think it'd be interesting to hear what that incident was, your involvement in it, because it's one of those pieces of history that not, not that it, it will get lost otherwise. It's forgotten, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, the people that that were alive then or whatever, it's a pretty interesting thing. So. Uh, there again, I'll try to give you the high points. So we get, you know, that happened in uh, 
was it April? Yeah, April, from about April 12th to April 15th, the My Guess was a container ship. It had left Hong Kong. It's going around the south and it was going to drop some stuff off in Thailand, I think. And now this was only about a few weeks after uh, Saigon fell. And they had, I forget the code word for that, but one of them was frequent wind. Uh, that might have been Fana or the evacuation of Phnom Penh. Okay. But anyway, the Khmer Rouge had uh, captured the Maigas. They had boarded it and took the crew. A crew of 41, I believe it was. It's a pretty good-sized container ship, you know, just typical of what uh, what you would see. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, the Cameroons, that, that's a communist party that ended up taking over Cambodia, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. The real Pol Pot, the real bad, bad guys that really doesn't get too much history, but it was god-awful. I mean, they marched people out in the fields and so many, so many people, the killing fields, if you haven't uh, yeah. heard of that term, it was a book written, and I didn't even think a movie, but it was pretty bad. So now it's kind of setting the stage here. The uh, Ford was president. Kissinger was uh, secretary of state. Schlesinger was secretary of defense. And Rockefeller was vice president, Nelson Rockefeller. Rumsfeld, who was uh, actually the chief of staff to Ford, so these guys, it is a, if you really wanted to study it, they're running the whole thing from the White House. And somewhat like the Vietnam War. I mean, what a disaster. The thing was a disaster. So anyway, I'll get yeah. to the high point. So I get launched out of there. Every, everything's confusing. Nobody knows what the hell to do. So some of my squadron mates, they were down there and they're just groaning around trying to figure out, well, what the hell are we going to do? We're the crewmen. We got to uh, rescue these crew. And we didn't know whether they're on the mainland of Cambodia, whether they were on an island. Well, the my guess itself was uh, anchored off of a island called Koh Tang. Cambodia, the uh, name for island is Ko. So you, everybody called it Koh Tang, but it's okay. actually Tang. And uh, so we didn't know at about the third day, I'm trying to think of the date, somewhere around the 13th, I think. I was down there with leading the two ship and uh, nothing was really going on. They had some AC-130s in the area, they had some RF-4s in the area taking pictures and they had an ABCCC. Are you familiar with that term? ABCCC is Airborne Command and Control and that's okay, a yeah. C-130, kind of like a mini AWACS. All right. So we're just kind of droning around, checking out the Maigas and everything. And he comes, ABCCC comes up and he says, oh, you won't believe this. They want you to strafe that gunboat. There was a gunboat between uh, the Maigas and Kotang Island, about the size of a tug maybe. Okay. And they said, we, we had to authenticate that. I don't know whether you still do that with yep. CAC wheel and all this other stuff. Yeah, you'll still do it. So, <laughs> you know, you can. You could imagine there's not a fighter pilot around that doesn't want to strafe a boat. Yeah. <laughs> no, you, you are not wrong. And I do have a story about that, but you are not wrong. A thousand rounds of 20 Mike Mike, 20 millimeter. <laughs> and my second passenger, so we average about 200 rounds, you know, which is quite a few. Yep. 
The second pass, I kind of hit the engine room. It feels like, kawoom, big explosion goes up and everything else. And my wing, he was so excited. He was a young lieutenant. He said, oh, man, Lee, you hit it, you hit it. <laughs> but anyway, and the RF4 guys, there's a little bit of a carnival thing. I'm making light of it, but it wasn't light. Now, the thing yeah. that I thought about later was that we didn't know where in the heck those American servicemen were. What if they would have been on that goddamn gunboat? That's one of those things you just don't know. And I I mean, I watch it now because I did Operation Inherent Resolve, and it was a really busy time. And um, the Jocko podcast, I was just listening to that. He actually just had one as one of these Yazidi women. uh, They're interviewing, and they're talking about being captive and the bombs falling on civilians and things like that, that you just don't know. And we were bombing checkpoints for a long period of time or several weeks, right? Because ISIS is real big with checkpoints right. and that was all over the media. Well, they quickly figured that out, right? And they started putting prisoners up at checkpoints. So we no longer bomb checkpoints, but you do have to wonder, and you don't necessarily know, like the enemy always gets a vote and they're always going to try to be deceptive and they're always going to try to control the narrative especially in today's world, but that's one of those things that you just, it plays in the back of your mind. I don't know, it, that aspect didn't play in my mind when I was, I think, actively engaged in the news in the beginning, but it's something you think about afterwards. Right. Well, if anybody's interested, I'll give you a, a link to a book too that was, uh, th- that I read that really shed some light on it. But anyway, so, it was pretty shallow there. The gunboat, we sunk it, and it, they brought an AC-130 in after us, put some 105 <laughs> howitzer shells on it. Yeah. Really did some good. Okay, so that was, I think, right around the 14th, if I'm not correct. So we're out of there early, early the next morning, and it was confusing. What's this mission going to be? You had a question. Go ahead. I was going to ask, so you're flying these sorties. Do you have a tanker that you're getting gas from, or are you guys just... All the time. Just... How long are you hanging out on station for this? Uh, you know, I'm just guess three to four hours. Okay. I imagine yeah. it's continuous coverage too. You guys are ripping out with other other fighters and it's continuous coverage on this boat. Yeah, not too many initially. Not too many. They had the RF4s taking pictures and they had uh, they had a Navy P3 down there. Okay. And but not initially. Now Okay, the high point was the 15th and the decision-making. That's why you need to read the book. If you're interested in it, it goes back and how these decisions were made and everything else. So the decision was made. We get up at 2 o'clock in the morning, whenever. We're briefing. We're down there as the sun rising, and I'm leading a three-ship, and there's airplanes everywhere. There's F-4s. I think there's 111s around. There are the, the Navy, they, they moved a carrier in there it's hitting the mainland of Cambodia and we're going to land marines on Koh Tang Island and there was a beach there you'd have to look at a map and see we call it the slingshot because it looked like a slingshot and here's what haunts me Rain. it haunts me to this day because nobody knew what the hell was going on a b triple c everybody's quiet and I remember looking over the canopy rail and seeing kaboom and then the Shortly thereafter, another explosion. I'm saying, man, the Navy's hammering the beach down there. Well, it wasn't the Navy. It was. I saw three helicopters get shot down in about uh, five minutes. Killed a bunch of Marines. So now all hell's breaking loose. 
are the survivors of the Maya guests, are the crew members on that island. Now we worked with some of the uh, PJs and there were some Jolly Greens involved in this thing. And, you know, they'd be keying their mic, they're running for their lives and saying, Sandy, Sandy, we're taking fire, we're taking fire. You could hear the bullets or the guns and everything else. And I mean, what the hell do you do? There's no fact involved. But anyway, I could go on and on about that. But uh, now, our, wouldn't you know it, here's the bad mistake, but who knows? It's the random aspect of it. The crew of the Maiguez was released about an hour before we stormed the beach at Kotang Island. And they're in a Thai fishing boat headed back to their ship. And the intel was so bad, we didn't get it. Gosh, who was so, so normally, at least I think nowadays, that type of mission, you would have a mission commander. So it'd be you, right? You would own the overall package. But right. with technology, if you're at the same base, everyone can brief it together. But most likely in those operations, you're not. So you're going to be doing some kind of secure you know, teleconference, VTC. So it sounds like you guys, everyone's just kind of showing up. But I imagine it was to a certain degree, it was. And then when these helicopters get shot down, what happened then? Is anyone talking about that or trying to figure out where that's coming from? Or like, who's honcho in this, this effort? Well, you know, AB triple C is the one that uh, actually is supposed to be honcho in it. But here's what haunts me. You know, if I had the, the guy, you know, I'm a relatively young guy with not that much experience. I should have looking back on, I should have said, to something like AB triple C crickets or call sign cricket. What the hell's going on here? Are we going to land? Are those helicopters, where are they going to land at? Cause there's two areas they could have. Cause we got some ground fire from that area they put in and there was about, I don't know, you get the different figures, 150 to 200 Khmer Rouge guys in there just waiting till those helicopters went into a cover and then they opened up on them. So, uh, but, Fast forwarding here, not spending too much time on it, there was a guy named Bob Undorf, I believe, OB-10 driver out of NKP that came down in the afternoon because now what had happened, we went from an offensive land mission to a rescue mission. Now we got to get these Marines off the island because we got the crew members back. And he was trained. He knew what the hell to do. And he took command and he got by nightfall really after nightfall he got all the marines out now here's the sad thing if you want to uh read the books and i've got some ralph wetterhan wrote a pretty good book called the last battle of vietnam but anyway here's the bottom line we left three guys there three marines were left and it's a sad uh sad state i'll tell you those are the last three names that are on the vietnam yes sir they are so one thing I will say, all the books you've mentioned, we'll get those, right. I'll put that up on the Afterburn podcast because this episode, it'll have a page sure. there. So people are interested in hearing about it. And that's the one thing that this is a three days, right? And I'll be honest, I was ignorant to it prior to you mentioning it. And I right. venture to say that's the vast majority of people, but Americans lost their lives doing the job of the nation. You don't want to forget those. And I think that's why it's important to capture these stories because there's so much three days and we've just talked about it in about 15 minutes. 
but there's so much more we really can dive into. And it's, it's wild to me. Do you think there's all the history there's it's, it is clear in history that Washington was running the war at that time. Do you think that was a factor in this incident or was it just, there wasn't the infrastructure in place to coordinate such a large scale attack on the fly or operation on the fly. Is that, does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. It was, it was the culture really uh, held over from, from Vietnam, you know, as far as the white house. I mean, they're choosing targets in uh, Washington, DC. So it was the same type thing, but you know, if you study the, uh, the books we'll, we'll put on your uh, website, uh, the thing of it was, they wanted to, we, we just got our butts kicked, leaving Vietnam, the morale was horrendous. So Kissinger and Ford, basically, they wanted to do some heavy military, they wanted to hurt people. Because, and they kind of sacrificed the crew to a little bit, some of the decisions they made. So, but to answer your question, there is no doubt. Now, you, you, you compare that to the desert storm situation obviously desert storm was much much bigger and everything but it was a completely different attitude how in the hell we handled that one right we learned centralized command decentralized execution you know as as one of the pillars i think out of all of this no question yeah trust your people train them and trust your people that's right um so that kind of wraps up karat and those two points your back state side again if people are interested in reading about that, I'll put more information up on the website and it'd be great to, yeah, we'll do like an informal thing with the Patreons, maybe a, a, do a happy hour where we can discuss this more. Cause sure. You bet. It's interesting to me. I know people find it interesting. So um, you come back after your second tour there. And then like you said, you go to the T38. Is that correct? To be a, That's correct. In Holloman. I yeah. went to a T38 in Holloman. So that would have been uh, 1975 towards the tail end. Now, I wasn't too happy about that. I would imagine. So did you go straight? You come back to the squadron in Myrtle Beach and then, and then no. change stations? Or it was straight from Karat back to or straight, straight to the T-30? From, yeah, I was out of Myrtle Beach. I wasn't going back there once I PCS'd, as they call it. Yep, same. So, okay. Uh, to Karat. So I went right to Holloman in the T-38. And most of the guys, the IPs were not all that fired up to be there. But <laughs> I'm telling you, we can talk about it. It was one of the most gratifying assignments I had. Why was it gratifying? Well, the gratification came from teaching young guys that I could identify with, I wasn't that old, that were fired up, that were going to F4, some to A7s. I mean, the F16 wasn't uh, in the picture quite yet. They were doing some testing on it and everything. And uh, we flew a lot, uh, quite a few FAPES came through there, which you're familiar with. And it was, and plus besides, we call it the white rat. I don't know whether you call it the white rat or the white rocket or whatever. Well, it was gray by the time I went through. (laughs) Well, we camouflaged those T-38s. But you know, out of all the airplanes that I have flown, that 38 is the most fun airplane just to strap it on, crank it up and go flying. I mean, it was wonderful. And we we flew the hell out of that airplane because so many times... You know, guys coming out of UPT 
I mean, you're you're kind of spoon fed a little bit, whatever. Yeah, you, you don't get to max perform the yeah the airplane. And it was one of my favorite things that hey, you ever done a max aileron roll in this thing? Oh, sir, we can't do that. It's against the rules. <laughs> the reason it's against the rules is because it's so damn fast yeah. at 720 degrees per second. <laughs> so I'd uh, say, okay, let me demo one. So I'd roll about 10 times. <laughs> one, two, three, four. I loved that airplane. I absolutely loved it. And the gratifying thing to me was teaching young guys, okay, they're coming in and, you know, okay, we're going to, let's basic air to BFM, basic fighter maneuvers. And, you know, you'd mention, okay, high yo-yos, low yo-yos, barrel roll attack. Well, they're looking, what the hell are you talking about? And it was fun for me to sit in the back seat. And when they got it, you could literally see their helmet light up. That's what you mean. That's very, very gratifying. I agree. No one really wants to be a fape, I don't think. I enjoyed my time doing it, and I would say it sure. was definitely very rewarding for that same aspect, right? You take someone who's straight off the street, and then in three or four months, they're flying on the wing in the weather three feet from their classmate doing some crazy thing. And that, to me, when when they get it right, you're like, obviously, the words I'm saying might make some sense, and they're able to translate that into flying ability, and it is it is rewarding for sure. I think any instructor would attest to that. Oh, no question. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. You know, and the fun thing about the 38, we had modified that. We put an A37 gun sight in it. We put a uh, hard point on where you carry a Su-20 with six practice bombs. Okay. And then we had a uh, 9.62 Gatling gun we hung underneath it. Uh, wrong, wrong, <laughs> was... wrong time for me. By the time I got there, it was digital, you know, so you got to do... IFF, well, we were calling it Introduction to Fighter Fundamentals versus Fighter right. Fundamentals. Same, same. It was all digital. You know, you're just counting digital beans. Well, I, that's a conversation for another time. I would love to find out because, you know, I really didn't follow it, but I know that's what they did. But uh, it was it was kind of a uh, kind of a fun thing. No question about it. I, I got a quick little story here that maybe have a little wisdom in it if you if you got time. I, I got nothing but time. Okay, the T-38 uh, story was I flew with a young guy. He was going to A-7s, and he was in the Puerto Rican Air National Guard. Just a, He was just a good look and looked like Omar Sharif, you know, with his mustache. <laughs> he was just a good kid, you know? Yeah. He was the most – before I tell you that, I, when I used to give a briefing, I'd draw a line up on the uh, blackboard whiteboard then and i would say okay here's the line i want on this side is aggressiveness i want you to be as aggressive as you can i want you to hover on that line now if you overstep that line this area is called the dumb shit line <laughs> you're going to hurt yourself you don't want to do that so okay do you understand that okay now this young kid he was the most aggressive student I've ever flown with. I mean, I'm flying an air to air. And before I know it, he slowed down. The guy spits out in front of us. They're in a kind of a scissors. He throws the flaps down. And I said, Roberto was his name. Roberto, what the hell are you doing? Max he said, oh, no, I can slow up. I can slow up. I said, you do that again. You're in big trouble. You're going to forget about him. You're going to overspeed him. 
<laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Guess what? We start another one. Bam. Down come the flaps. <laughs> I'm saying Roberto. Okay. That's it. I got it. We hey. go back. You took the ride. <laughs> <laughs> He's max performing the plane. I can respect that. The full envelope, you know? <laughs> well, that's the fun part of it. The sad thing, Rain, he killed himself in an A7 about three months later. How'd he kill himself? As DM. Now, I don't know exactly. I mean, I had somebody call me up for an accident investigation board because I put in his grade book, you know, that uh, you, you kind of got to temper that aggressiveness. And he, he departed an A7, didn't get out of it, and uh, ended up augering in and killing himself. So it's a bummer. Yeah, it's a dangerous business. But the thing that most people don't get who don't fly fighters, the whole point is max reforming that plane, taking it to its limit, right? But not exceeding the limit. Because like you, as you described, it kind of goes from you got to be right there on the line of aggressiveness. Once you cross over, it can trickle into recklessness. Um, no question. You know, and it's a, it's know, a fine what line. it boils down to judgment. Yeah. That, judgment. That's what that line is, right? That's where, you know, no question. Cause it's not defined and you got to know when, where the line is. And that's where the judgment piece comes in. Absolutely. I used to, you know, avoid stupidity before seeking brilliance. And, you know, I used to tell my students, Hey, listen, you get just as much fun out of flying 150 feet as you do 50 feet. So, uh, well, well, not that a hundred feet is going to give you that much of a buffer, but it's something. <laughs> right. Exactly. So anyway, I did, uh, the 38 stuff, you know, and the only other quick story I have is, uh, we, we used to fly pop-ups, you know, right down in the weeds, pop up to yeah. a 30 degree dive bomb or whatever. It was a fun mission. Fun, fun, fun. So I can't remember. Yeah. I was in the backseat. So, we come back in a day, the next day or a day later, uh, there was one of the 38s, the god dang wing come off right at the wing root. Boom, punched out, the guy survived, no Good. problem. Yeah, okay. But guess what airplane it was? The one I was doing pop-ups on. If that wing comes off, I'm a dead man, along with my student, because you, had no, you can recover at that altitude. Yeah, so there's yeah, a little bit, little bit of things in there. Oh, I forgot one A7 story. I got to tell you. Oh no, we're not. Yeah, we. Yeah, I forgot no. one A7. Yeah, story. no, I, yeah, well, yeah. This is this is great. Okay, it, this is a good one too. To where you show a little luck, I'll try to keep it short. But anyway, I'm, towards the end of the program, we had a because the instructor used to go up with three students, so I'm number two. Okay. We're coming down initial over Tucson. I'm sure you've been to DM. I mean, it's pretty close to yep. downtown and landing, whatever direction, I can't remember. So he gives us a cross under. So I'm number two. I go behind lead. I said, okay, fine. It looks like I got enough room here. Ooh, look, no, I'm, like, I'm not gonna say anything. <laughs> I move up oh. and hit the wing of number three with my wing. Okay. <laughs> Take about a foot off of it. Maybe not that much. And uh, <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine? So Greg Jots was the guy's name. He was a cool dude. But anyway, I get I land and there's the goddamn 06 car waiting on me. He's up there looking at the wing. I'm I know I'm in deep trouble. Here's a quick story. 
I had a, the DO at the time, a full colonel, rip me up one side and down the other. And rightfully so. I tried driving an airplane where there's no room. I mean, I walked out of there bleeding bad, I'll tell you. So then I had to go see the wing commander, who was a guy named Fred Hafner. He did, didn't look anything like a fighter pilot, a little overweight, but the greatest guy. And he, I come down, he said, just have a seat there on my couch. He said, you know, Lieutenant, he says, when you get those wings, you get a little bag of luck with them. He said, you just used a little bit of that luck. Dismissed. No, yeah. <laughs> That's the guy you now. The funny for. part the guy that chewed my ass out, I go to the Pentagon on an Astro tour. Guess who my boss is? That guy <laughs> <laughs> for a short time, then he left. Oh, uh, well, usually when you bump planes together, it doesn't work out well, <laughs> no. and it, it usually it results in a rocket ride, best case scenario. So, the fact that you're able to land it, you know, learn from it, that's a win in my book. Uh, well, it was uh, it was a learning experience, yeah. but it could have been catastrophic over the middle of Tucson. Oh my God! Well, it's it's a game of inches, right? And no question, you know that for sure. Yeah, I mean, in, anyone. And I, I just did an interview with uh, Purdy, who's the RAF Red Arrows leader. He ejected out of a Harrier, and his scenario at the end of it, people listen to the podcast, is he had all these senior guys come up to him, and they all tapped him on the shoulder and said, "Hey." you know, the difference between you and me is I just got lucky, right? Because they'd all, they'd all done this profile that he was flying and they managed. But again, it's a matter of maybe it's just a little bit warmer that day. This motor's producing a little bit thrust, a little less thrust, whatever it might be. It's a game of inches and go left or right one way or the other. And it's either completely catastrophic or you're walking away and you're telling the story at the bar and laughing about it. So again, it's that line you were talking about between aggressiveness recklessness, the judgment, again, it comes down to down to the wire, I think, in a lot of cases. You bet. No question about it. Well, I'm glad you made it. I'm, yeah, that, that's a good lieutenant <laughs> story, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good one. So we'll jump, because that was prior to going to Karat. You're, you're back flying T-38s, and then you said you right. ended up going up to the F-5 weapons school. Yeah, I went to F-5 Weapon School, which is, it was a hard decision for me because always in the back of my mind, man, I'd like to be an airline pilot. I like the, the lifestyle, you know, traveling around, young flight attendants in the back. Yeah, <laughs> rough life, <laughs> rough life. So, so I always wanted to do that, but this was such a great opportunity. I wanted to fly the F-5 too, and, you know, to to get an S prefix in front of my name is kind of a feather in your cap. And at that time I was still pretty motivated. So uh, yeah, so I went to Willie and uh, checked out in the F5. I think I had one or two, two seat rides, but uh, that the F5E was a neat airplane. It was, you know, anybody that has, that has ever flown it. I mean, they use it as aggressor. I don't think the air force flies anymore. I think the Navy yeah. might. Yeah, the, I know the Marines do for sure. I don't know about the yeah. Navy. And then a lot of contract red air, they, they still fly today. It'd be a fun yeah. plane to fly. I, I want to fly it. Exactly. And, you know, the, the Nellis boys, not to denigrate any of the patch wearers, but they kind of look down their nose a little bit. Oh, well, you didn't go through Nellis. You didn't do this. You can't wear the real patch. So, but, you know, I got an S prefix. So I, I don't hold, it's no big deal. But it was a fun deal. It was... Uh, 
great flying. And these guys, these Iranian, two Iranian guys I went with, they had like well over a thousand hours in the airplane. And they were very good. The South Korean, all those guys were very good. The instructors were fantastic. And uh, so I thoroughly enjoyed that, even though it was a lot of studying and everything else. But I picked up a, uh, I don't know, it was a five-year commitment or a three-year commitment Okay. out of that. So uh, what, what year were you flying the F-5 weapons school? Okay, that, that would have been around uh, 19... 77. Okay. The reason I'm asking, I'm trying to do math here, but um, obviously our partnership with Iran probably came to an end shortly after your time there. Pretty, pretty close to that. Now I know it was a little bit later because it's another story, but I briefed uh, Riza Pahlavi, the Shah of Iran's son okay. at the Pentagon on a red flag uh, deal. And he had, he went through pilot training in the U.S. If you knew that, I didn't. I didn't know it, but it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of people don't realize too. You know, at Columbus Air Force Base, for instance, I think there's like fifty some odd partner nations that go through pilot training with us. We have Euro NATO right. Joint Jet Pilot Training out at Shepherd, and that's where people think right. mostly international. But I mean, there are African countries I had never heard of. I'm not very smart, so take that with a grain of salt. But <laughs> we partner with a lot of nations and obviously those nations are always in flux. So it's interesting to see. Yeah, very much so. So, you know, this Iran must've fell uh, or the Shah did it's right around 79. I could be yeah, wrong. You know, that's, we, we, 79 we was the number that was in my mind, but again, I'll caveat right. not very smart. So. But uh, it, it, the whole thing was fun. I really don't have any high points. The only thing I remember, I almost bought the farm. You know where bought the farm came from? No. <laughs> yeah, I, I know the term. I've used the I've used I the didn't term. know until somebody told me the other day that I've been reading. When World War One fighter pilots, they got an insurance for $10,000 when they went to the war. And if they got killed, they said cash out their insurance enough to buy the farm because most of them were, they were <laughs> farmers. So that's where the term came from. But anyway, I almost bought the farm because back that F-5, believe it or not, had a the did they no they didn't call it a counter drum altimeter it was one with the three points on the damn thing you can misread it yeah i misread misread it ten thousand feet and dusted off the goddamn desert floor you're not the first person to do that and i'm sure you're not the last person to do that no question no what, question yeah what were you doing when that happened were you uh we were doing some sort of an air-to-air -air mission good so, <laughs> yeah, it makes me cringe. Um, because that's something it's so it's such a minor mistake, right? Yes. That's the attention to detail, but it could happen to anyone. No, it, oh, so so true. So true. But uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed flying it. What was a neat little thing about it, if not too many people know, they had a nose wheel extension on the darn thing before takeoff. You didn't go, you didn't take off if that nose wheel extension didn't work. And increase the AOA of the uh, wing. Interesting. So you know we're there with T-38s and a in a and T-37s and at Willie there, and you know we used to raise our nose wheels with uh, in formation, which was we thought we were cool. 
<laughs> but yeah, it was, you were, I really you don't were. have any real high points, even though the guys were good. They were tough, you know, tough debriefs. I mean, the typical type of stuff. I was looking at your resume too. This is kind of jump a little bit, but uh, do you have any involvement with MIGS? Very interesting. You mentioned that. No. Okay. Let me, let me, I'll, I'll get to that because uh, I got another book too, that we can talk about. Okay. So F5s, I go back to Holloman for about a year and then I go to the Pentagon. Now I was supposed to go to personnel in the Pentagon. Somehow there was a, an acquaintance, not a close friend, acquaintance saw my name, said I was going to personnel. And I ended up in the fighter shop in the basement of the Pentagon. Okay. It was another stroke of luck. Better be lucky now, than good. I did because they took their guy that wasn't a fighter guy and he went to personnel <laughs> and I ended up, at, he never forgave me. He was a great guy too. He was a great guy. <laughs> But I ended up in XOOTT was the thing of it. It was in operations, the basement of the Pentagon. And okay, I did that. It was a, it, here, I shouldn't be name droppers, but I will. I worked with two guys there, one a lot more than others. It, these guys were Patriot, fighter pilot, F4 guys mostly. And uh, they were just super guys, hardworking. And one of the guys was John Jumper. Okay. Yep. If you, the Jumper, how can you forget that right. name? Huh? Hey, Johnny he got, he Jumper. Got few, was, he got a few stars. He was, he was my mentor. So he was a major. I was a captain, and uh, he ended up being chief of staff of the Air Force. A quick aside: when he made chief of staff, I kind of lost contact with him and everything through the years. But I found out. I sent him an email. And, John, I'm proud of you. You're my mentor. You're, you know, yada, yada. And he, I said, by the way, I can still kick your butt on the racquetball court. <laughs> he said, bring it up. <laughs> and the other one who worked in Operation Checkmate, they called it, was Dickie Myers. Okay. General Myers yeah. was the work for Rumsfeld. So I'm thinking, I, boy, I'm telling you, I'm a total failure and a loser. But those guys <laughs> were super guys. And I'm so happy. <laughs> that they that they did so well, you know. Yeah. Okay. So, there, I worked with a guy there who was an F four guy named Gail Peck. Now there was a, another gentleman named Bill Sakahar that was working on super duper top secret stuff. Now all this stuff has been uh, declassified now, and what they were doing was building a facility up north in Tonopah to, and they were out getting MIGs surreptitiously or however the hell they got them, you know? Magic, yeah. Do you know anything about this rain? Does that ring a bell for you or is that way past your time? No, well, way, I mean, it was, it was past my time, but uh, General Carlisle who actually checked me out for the demo. Uh -huh. He's actually punched out from one. And it's, again, it's a small world aviation. So the, the guy who got me involved, I would say kind of put me on this path was a neighbor. He's a Delta pilot, former Air Force, but he and General Carlisle were roommates at the academy. You know, so when I did sure. my checkout with General Carlisle, I had that connection. So it is, it's a small world, especially in the aviation realm, where you kind of see, you're, I mean, it's three degrees of separation, I feel like. 
Oh, no question about it. It's amazing, isn't it? The fraternity is pretty darn small. So anyway, Dale Peck was working on it and this, I didn't even know anything about it. I mean, it was super top secret. And then I got briefed in or something. I can't remember exactly why. But uh, the, most of these guys were flying aggressors, F5s. Well, I had F5 time. So it was saying, well, if you can cut it, maybe. And I had orders, believe it or not, for Nellis okay. aggressors. So Peck on the side says, well, if you can hack it, maybe. You, you know, you can go up and fly the types. They call them the types right there. Now, the book, if you're interested, if anybody's interested, it's a great book written by Gail Peck, and we can put that on there, The America's Secret MiG Squadron. So I won't go into any details or anything else, but that's, it was a tough decision, as you can imagine. That would have been pretty cool, yeah. feathering the cap and everything sure. else. If I, if I could have hacked it, I'm not saying I <laughs> would have, but uh, I decided to get out. So that's the, that's the story. And I met a lot of those guys that were flying and, you know, it was really so damn secret that some other friends that were up, there were aggressors saying, Oh man, you better think about this because these guys can't tell anybody what the hell they're doing. They can't even tell their family and they're traveling a lot and yada, yada. But it was that whole, that whole operation was put together by some really gung-ho guys i'll tell you it's impressive i'm definitely not the smart guy but it's nice to know there's smart people out there solving complex problems i got some buddies who disappear for a few weeks and i know <laughs> 20 years from now we'll see whatever they're working on flying around which is pretty Absolutely. cool to say um but it, it's i don't know it, it's fun and it's interesting and it's pretty impressive just to see what people are capable of doing if only I could really, do something. Yeah. Really, because there's probably some things that it would say, holy moly, you know damn well yeah. what they're doing. But uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was a very interesting thing. Uh, my job at the Pentagon was red flag. I, I tried to keep all the generals smart on red flag. Okay. Now, I never met the guy, which bummed me out a little bit. There was a guy named Moody Souter, who was an F-4 driver, a uh, Southeast Asia veteran. Okay. He's the one that came up with the concept of red flag. If you can get 10 missions in, your your survival rate goes way, way up. So that was, and he worked right there in my office, in the office that I worked in. That's small. And you know, here's a guy nobody knows about, and he didn't, he didn't, he, he didn't really uh, strive to get the attention or anything else. He was just a hardworking fighter pilot and he, and he made it happen. That's what I love about this community because there are so many individuals. There, there are people who will shoot down a MIG. Their name will go on buildings. They'll get bases named after them, whatever it might be. But again, the company that you're in, I'm, I connect, I've connected with people that I never would have connected with before, like-minded individuals that automatically you have the rapport and the trust with that is pretty unique. It's a fraternity, as right. you said. Right. So you end up getting out. I know that was a tough decision. Tough decision. Going, tough decision. Going to the airlines, but you keep flying in the fast jet business. So, why well, I say fast jet business, you went to the A-10. So, <laughs> you know, what was the transition like to the A-10 as well as going through the airline training? Because you're doing all that and juggling. It's, it's a good bit to juggle. 
far from fast airplanes and the warthog, but hey, what a, it's a great <laughs> fish. Yet. If I remember right, I heard one of your podcasts that said you wanted to fly the A-10 initially. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, that's true. You did call me out on that. I, I did want to fly the A-10. I want, so I think probably like every fighter pilot, I wanted to get in the mix. I'm joining in Afghanistan. Iraq has been going on and I'm a fape, so I feel like I'm missing it. The one thing I wanted to do was get into the fight. And I felt like the A-10, sure. you're going to go do close air support. That was the fight. Fortunately, doing that MC-12 stint while I was a fave, it was a good exposure. Met a lot of great people, cool mission set, more tools for the bag of tricks. But glad I moved on from that. But sure. the, the exposure I had to the individuals flying the F-16 with me, or F-16 pilots, that's what opened my aperture, opened up my radar, if you will. To know, hey, there's there's really an awesome platform out there that does a lot of things, which I was ignorant to because I was just either naive or I didn't research it enough or I made some assumptions I shouldn't have. So it worked out. Do I still want to shoot that gun? Yeah, you bet. But going fast and <laughs> doing everything that 16 does, that's where you want to be in life. My bias well, opinion. I'm so fortunate. I'm so lucky to have flown both of them and experienced both of them for quite a length of time, really. Yeah. Great. And so, you know, the A-10 was relatively new. We didn't have too much magic stuff in there. But I got a, a, a local checkout. I didn't have to go to, to the schoolhouse. And uh, it, it was, uh, you know, fun as hell. Yeah. To, and we had literally, I flew out of Syracuse, and we literally had the Latin area, low-altitude tactical navigation area, all the way up over the Adirondacks. Yeah. And it was some of the most beautiful territory. And we'd do our bombing and strafing up to Fort Drum. And it was just a, you know, just a great mission down in the weeds. I mean, you'd take off. There's several missions when the weather would be somewhat dicey and hell, you wouldn't even get above a thousand feet. You know, you'd be in there dropping level bombs and uh, you can imagine the weather in Siberiacuse that I used to call it. <laughs> now, right, those, yeah. those guys are going to hate me for it because they hated the guys that's, that live up there. But bad, some so. of the weather we had, oh, my God, unbelievable. So, uh, yeah, I did a local checkout and, you know, did the normal things, had several different ORIs, and we uh, flew around uh, with uh, different uh, – I never did go to Europe. Our, our squadron went to Europe. They went over to Germany. I don't – Jeez, they might have flown the airplane over there. I can't even remember. But taking, yeah, so I flew that weeks. for about seven and a half years. Yeah, not bad. And then you, you know, transitioned to the F-16, right? Through Syracuse, yeah. is that correct? Yeah, we come. So then we went the F-16. So that would have been right around 89, maybe 90 to the A model. Okay. Which was, they call it the small tail. I mean, those guys, those things have been in the desert forever, but it was a pretty hot machine. And we got checked out in that, and shortly thereafter, Desert Storm started. And uh, I th I'd have to look at the calendar and see exactly how many days and everything. So then, uh, you know, to tell you the truth, the Desert Storm thing, I could have probably got out of it, Rain. I was an older guy. I was about 43 years old. I could have weanied out yeah. and retired. I couldn't live with myself, you know? <laughs> so besides, it was kind of, yeah. it was an adventure. Well, what was Desert Storm like for you? 
uh, it was a hell of a lot different than than uh, Vietnam and Cambodia. I'll tell you that. Did you guys uh, were you PSAB or where were you guys out of? We were out of Alcarj. Okay. Now it I, they might have renamed Alcarj. I don't know. It was a kind of a forward operating area okay. right around Riyadh. Okay. I mean, I'm not super familiar with it. I fly over. Right. That's about all I want to do. <laughs> you know, but. Well, it was about five and a half months. We lived in tents, but it Ugh. wasn't that bad because yeah. they were air conditioned. Slumming it Air Force style. I'm telling you what I mean. And then all the guys up in beer rain, we call it. They're living in hotels <laughs> and a big time. But uh, we flew 13 and a half hours over there, which was uh, kind of a highlight. And the poopy suit, we had two lieutenants to wear them. And all the rest of the guys said, no, those poor lieutenants were, they were miserable by the time they got there. Yeah, that's a long time in a poopy suit. That's a long time in a viper period. Oh, man. Oh, man. So, you know, three, six ships, uh, 30 minutes apart. I was leading the last one. We got there. There was a dust storm. And the tanker said, okay, I'm see you guys. I said, he's going up to Riyadh. I said, no way, pal. You're staying right here with us till we get in. Because we had no instrument approaches. Yeah. So the our uh, ops officer at the time, he was on the ground and mobile and uh, said, okay, fly this. We had a tack in, fly this radio, let down 200 feet on the radio altimeter, see if you see anything. So, what? <laughs> so I came in and I'll never forget. I said, okay, every man for himself. They took radar trail. I come in, I come across about a 30 degree. I see the landing lights. Boop, I land. All five guys went around. <laughs> But then, then the weather cleared up and they came back around and landed. But the point I wanted to say is I'll never forget. I went down, <laughs> de-armed, come back, and there was a South Carolina. We were over there with McIntyre. Okay. And uh, there was a South Carolina crew chief. The dust was blowing, and he had these Rommel goggles on. And I raised a canopy. I'm exhausted, as you well know. You've probably done those long, long hops. And he puts the ladder up, comes up, and I'm getting un unhooked. And he, he looks at me and he says, welcome to hell. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, the Desert Storm thing, that story's been told many, many times. I mean, it, it started out where, you know, the Intel guys said, so 10% of you guys aren't coming back. Yikes, which got our attention. Yep. But it turned out they really didn't have the will to fight. So many MiGs went to Iran and, you know, the Weasels did a great job over there. The F-4 Weasels and the Jammers, F-111s. And it was the way, as you, I'm sure you've heard, this is the way to fight the goddamn war. Yeah, textbook. I mean, we hit them with everything. I think they had a buff strike like every 30 minutes for days. And my concern was after those first three or four days was running into another airplane because you could imagine it was like World War II with contrails are going everywhere. Yeah, I can't. And, yeah, that's what we always joke. Now, red flag is usually a deconfliction flag. But I imagine. Yes. You know, the skies are filled. <laughs> were, were, you guys, were you guys doing a lot of uh, strike missions or is it close here? Yeah, somewhere? that's all we did. We, we no, we did fly some mid cap, you know, later on and and stuff but we started out with 16 ship gaggles you know nope. going against mostly uh sa6s and up near baghdad and then a lot of stuff in basra 
And uh, we were the F-16, the little known fact was we were the only squadron that, because uh, we were kind of a close air support unit from the A-10 to the F-16 of Syracuse and we had uh, 30 millimeter gun pods. So we had one day, we carried the 30 millimeter gun pod, which was kind of cool. And then I don't know, for whatever reason, they didn't use it again, you know, but I remember chasing an 18 wheeler down a <laughs> hardball road with that 30 millimeter gun pod. I'm, I guess I'm not proud of it, but it was fun. Well, you know, he shouldn't have been a bad guy. <laughs> you know, but I remember I was coming in there and it made a pretty, it got pretty low and I hear see the tires light up, you know, smoke coming out of it. And I'm, I sit, thought to myself, man, you should be going faster, not slowing down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no joke. Could you, if you use that 30 millimeter gun pod, could you still use the 20 millimeter? Was it disabled or? Great question. No, you could. That's a no, long let me see. You know, looking back on it, I didn't even think about that. Maybe they disconnected it. Obviously, you you had the trigger for the 30 millimeter gun pod. So that, that's a great question, uh, Rain. I didn't even think of it. I, I didn't know. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know the 30 millimeter gun pod was even a thing for the F-16. So I'm learning a lot today. Of course, of course, not many people did. Um, I and because I, I've I've heard stories, guys, they're just hot pitting and they're turning constantly. They're loading them up with Mark eighty fours, and it's just one after another, or Mark eighty twos, dumb bombs. And they're just doing twenty degree attacks, but they would fly eight hours in a day, and they might hot pit two or three times, you know, which we'd do at training, you know, to go fight BFM, but never to go out there just to hop across the border drop a bunch of Mark 84s and then go back. Were you guys doing that kind of stuff too? Is that a normal we were, day in the life we, See, we were quite a ways from the war. So we didn't, we would hot pit refuel every time okay. coming home to top it off. And, uh, but we weren't doing a lot of turns out of there. You know, if we, we flew, you know, over four and a half, five hours, we'd be tanking most of the time. But uh, now, but I understand, we're, you know, those bases that were closer, I mean, they're, uh, they're flying a hell of a lot and they're hot pit going out again. But we did drop uh, quite a few 2,000 pounders. We dropped them with a 50 foot radar fuse, which is whew, one hell of a weapon. That's a crowd pleaser. Oh, man, I tell you. So, uh, <laughs> and the targets were so much better there. I mean, there's a guy named Buster Clausen. He was uh, the general over there. Unfortunately, he got some hot water and ended up retiring. But he was a typical fighter pilot. He came to Al Kars and briefed us on us. And, you know, he was a very colorful guy, you know. And uh, from he said, this ain't no stinking Vietnam we're going to do. We ain't bringing no goddamn bombs back. He was very entertaining. <laughs> tough to but, do these uh, days you know it, our squadron commander was an f4 marine guy uh froggy was his name just a wonderful guy god rest his soul he uh he said at the tail end he said well it's nice to win one for a for a change <laughs> so, one of the w called finally finally got one of those right well so you're doing all this and I, we've we've talked a lot about your military career but you also had a very successful airline career. And I'm just looking at it here, 727, 737, 747, and 777, multiple airlines. And as you alluded to in the beginning, 
you only spent three weeks as a first officer. So right place, right time. I always say that's, that's a big deal. And sometimes you hit it, sometimes you don't, but I would say it sounds like you nailed it when it comes to a flying career and a very successful one at that. Total luck. A lot of, you know, you, you kind of make your own luck. I made the decision, but I remember when, you know, at Holloman, when I'm uh, getting ready to get out, that'd be February of 81. And, uh, you know, guys, uh, friends would come in. Now, wait a second. He said, what the hell are you thinking of? You're going, you're getting out. Nobody's hiring. I had an interview with Easter and they canceled it. Nobody's hiring. And I read about this, uh, a company, a startup in Newark, New Jersey called People Express Airlines. And so I pursued that, make a long story short, I got hired and uh, I went to Newark and it was, uh, I went through two bankruptcies with Continental thinking I'd, you know, when I was at Desert Storm, I I didn't think I was going to have a job to coming back. In fact, I tried to get an interview with uh, Emirates. Wow, yeah. And I even went to Dubai to their offices there to talk to their chief pilot, who was an Indian guy. And he said, basically, yeah, you don't have any last cockpit time. We're not interested. Jesus, I mean, the (laughs) F-16's got a heads up display. What do you mean? Right. But anyway, that's an aside. But yeah, I was lucky. And, you know, the thing of it is, you, you hear fighter pilots would say, oh, man, who in the hell? Why would you want to drive a bus around? But you know now, being uh, flying triple sevens, it's just a different, different animal, and it's still fun. And believe it or not, I probably had more emergencies in the seven forty seven than I had in any other airplane. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> we could go into some of those if you want to, but yeah. they're pretty interesting. Yeah, I, you know that's one thing that you. When you're flying a single seat, single engine plane and you have an emergency, mayor of Cockpit City, the stress level is usually pretty high or can be, depends upon what it is. But when you're flying a 600,000 pound airplane over vast stretches of the ocean or even over land, right? If you have an issue, there's some complexities there that can be pretty challenging. For sure. What what's some of the hairiest things you've seen in the old seven forty seven? You know, th- there's another story before getting into this. I'll just uh, uh, every guy that wants to pursue any career, really aviation, whatever, you're going to have adversity. And before I, I I get to that, just a a quick blurb. Okay, I get out of Holloman. I go to United Training Center to get a seven thirty seven type rating. Okay, that would have been uh, early 81. The only thing I'm gonna say is here's a dumb shit fighter pilot. And they made the mistake of sticking me with an F-15 guy who's a prince of a guy. And two fighter pilots together is not good. We had an instructor, an older guy. He was anything but motivated, wouldn't give us any extra time. Now I'm not necessarily blaming him, but I am a little bit. (laughs) And then, before we know it, he writes back to the company and say, these guys are not going to make it. You know, yeah. they have Thanks. problems. And V1 cuts, you know what V1 yeah. cuts are. Well, this is so, you know, 
to make a long story as short as I can, I can't sleep. I'm worried what I find out about this. I'm out of the Air Force. What the hell? I can't get in the airlines. I said, this, this can't be right here. I finished number one in pilot training. And this guy tells me I can't fly. So anyway, we have kind of a check ride to say, okay, whether you're going on or whether you're not, here's another bit of luck, Rain. You know who that instructor was? A United pilot instructor doing SAMs, an old F-100 pilot. And he says, hey, these guys are no problem. Give me one ride with them. They'll be ready for a check ride. Right. It's funny, so, it's funny you say that you, now, you know, my, AT, my ATP check ride, my ATP partner was a Hornet guy. Yeah. We were in a program with a bunch of other military pilots. I think we were the only two fighter guys. We're like, why did you put us together? We don't know. Like, <laughs> none of this makes sense. Like, can I be with the C-130 guy and he'd be with the KC-10 guy? Like, we need a seeing eye person here. And then same as once I started with the airline, going through the sim, I'm paired with an Osprey guy. And they're heavy guys in our group. And prior regional guys i'm like maybe we could split these two dum-dums up and give us someone who can help uh, help help me because i don't know what a v1 cut is but yeah you figure it out it's it's a different it's a different way of flying and of it's just it you just got to get some exposure to it and it's a different challenge so of course i figured out how to step on the rudder although you know the triple seven you really don't have to they they make us yeah exactly exactly <laughs> So anyway, that the F-100 guy taught us how to do V-1 cuts. He said, okay, don't even rotate the airplane. I'm gonna fail an engine, just keep it on the center line. That was a little, a little tip that made all the difference in the world. But anyway, so yeah, this 37, I flew, I loved the 727. I flew it for about seven years. Uh, if I could have only had one more approach and landing, I could have figured out how to land the damn thing. <laughs> Good. It was the <laughs> hardest airplane. I swear to God, the picture looks good. Everything is good. Eek, eek, nice landing. The next one would be a spine cruncher. <laughs> but it was a fun airplane. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Okay, my best 747 story. And it's, it's, uh, it's funny and it's very serious. Uh, I'm coming out of Brussels. And we had a full load. And I think that we put, I think it's 455 people on that thing. Wow. It was a lot of people the way we had it uh, configured. Okay. Yeah. So we're heavier and heavier in hell. And there is a young guy getting flight engineer training. We didn't have any two seaters, all old airplanes. Okay. We got from Alitalia, I think. So he's got an FE instructor. So the instructor is watching the brand new, it was his second ride. We went to Brussels and then it's, it's his second one. Okay, we're loaded up, got plenty of gas on board, taken off out of Brussels and my leg and just 10 knots below V1, which is a decision speed, as you well know. Kaboom, left engine blows up. So initially I said, oh my God, we blew some tires here. I'm thinking to myself, but no, it was the left engine. So below V1, I'm unbelievable. So bam, I on the binders, and I think we had auto brakes, tell you the truth, and we selected max or whatever. 12,000 foot runway, we went right to the end. Oh man. So now I look down, number two engines, EGT is pegged. And uh, the engineer instructor 
said, oh my God, look at those brake temp indicators pegged in the red. So now I said, oh man, we're gonna blow some tires here. So I tell the engineer, the student engineer, shut down two. And we're talking to tower, we start taxiing off and they're bringing fans out, the big fans yeah. to cool those tires down. Cause we're, I'm surprised that we didn't pop any tires yet. I look down as we're coming off the runway and I look at number two engine, I was going, Jesus, it's still pegged. I look at the cutoffs. He'd shut down number three. Oh, man. It's still number oh, two. Man. Yeah. <laughs> so I just reached down and shut two down. And I can't remember whether we started the other. I think we started the other. But the thing of it is, the very serious thing about this, and it shows you even in commercial aviation if we'd have got airborne and he had to shut the wrong engine down two shot threes down we're dead and along with 450 people there are several accidents out there that i know you are probably familiar with that i've gone through where that exact scenario has happened the c5 out of dover yes you know shutting the wrong that's one that really pops in my mind shutting the wrong motor down I think we've actually had some recent ones. I got to go back and read some of the reports, but um, yeah, inadvertently shutting the wrong motor down. That's it can happen, and that's the thing. It's it's such a it's a minor thing of it's it's an easy thing to do too. And you can see in the heat of the moment that anyone we're can do human. It. Yeah, it's we so easy. Human mistakes, man. Whew. Better man, be the wine tasted good at that night. Yeah, I'll better be lucky than good. No question. I'm a perfect example of it. So anyway, I can't believe we didn't blow any tires. We get back to, we get the people off the airplane and bust them out of there and everything else. And then we went around and they brought the platform out. We're looking at that number two engine and there's molten metal everywhere. I mean, it's shot. So we're not going anywhere. So now here's where kind of a judgment comes in. Now, if we throw this young engineer under the bus, he's through more than likely. He's in deep trouble. So the engineer instructor, he was a super guy, Nick Hook, Dr. Hook, we called him. I said, we're going out to dinner. We Brussels, great restaurants. We went out to dinner, had plenty of wine. And I can say this now after all these years, I said, listen, all four of us, blood brothers right here, nobody says a word we're blood brothers because Tom was his name, the engineer. We, we throw Tommy under the bus. He's through. Yeah. Was it a bad mistake? It was a bad mistake. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there's not anybody around that couldn't make that in the heat of battle. Plus he's brand new on the airplane. Yep. So I, I swear to God, I thought Tommy was going to kiss me on the lips. He was so <laughs> happy. <laughs> Well, you know, so we come out, we come out looking pretty good, you know. So that's the thing. There, there are those who made those mistakes, those that will. The fact that you're all walking and you're enjoying wine and living to talk about it, you no can, question, you can chalk it up, and it's something I'm sure he never did again. There is no doubt in my mind. You know, I, I could probably look him up, but I've never talked to him since when we get back to Newark. You know, they put a new engine on it. 
and uh, we get back to Newark, I, I never saw him again. In fact, I don't think I saw any of the crew members, but if, if they would happen to be listening to this, they'd know exactly That's funny. the feelings and everything else. But it is a uh, interesting story. I think I've lost three engines in my career. Every one of them was on the 777, I mean the uh, 747. Well, no, better. one of them was on the 72. Okay, well, it's better than most of the planes. You know, if you do that in the Viper, it's going to be different. It's good to have, <laughs> I good to have I options. Come, I come off the target in Desert Storm in the Viper with that Pratt engine, got a little bit slow looking over my shoulder to see where my bombs hit, and kawoom, that goddamn compressor stalled because I got slow. Yeah. You could take that GE engine, as you well know, stick it straight up and slide back or throw it in the burner. No issue. And I've heard guys, they had, there was actually a, a GE motor out of Korea. They installed some part backwards. That motor ran for like 40 hours and then it completely blew up. But for really? the fact, like if you think about the amount of stress that is going on in those fan in those turbine sections, Installing any part backwards that it ran, that even started is amazing. But the fact that it ran for 40 hours before its catastrophic destruction is pretty impressive in my book. Very much so. I'll take Very that, G. So. Well, Slough, I really appreciate you taking the time today. An amazing career in aviation with a lot of great stories. And everyone's going to like listen to this. So, again, thank you for taking the time. And it was great just being able to catch up and, and learn a little bit from you. Rain, thanks so much for letting me tell my story, and I wish you all the best. You're doing some very good work for young people that are interested in an aviation career, and, uh, you know, all the best to you. I appreciate and before it. before you say it, don't bring it weak. Yeah, don't bring it weak. I appreciate it. Thanks, love. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening today. Again, swing over to iTunes, leave that rating and review, help the podcast grow. If you want to support the podcast and you're looking for more content, and looking for some free merchandise that's included with your tiers, patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast, early episodes, ad-free, there I was stories, and more bonus content. Again, patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast.